Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Talking the Cure, Hogan Lovell's Life Sciences and Healthcare Podcast, still the home office edition. Today is a happy day for me as I'm constantly chasing our associates and counsel to jump on the podcast with me. And today is the day. Susan Levy-Friedman and Michael Penners are joining me to discuss the ongoing marketing activities for COVID-19 test kits and the issues coming along with that. As always, I'm keeping the entry short since we're going to each other after this for some housekeeping. Without further ado, let's sit down and talk the cure. Suzanne, Michael, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for joining me. Before we start the discussion and the conversation around it, I would like you to quickly introduce yourself. So Suzanne, can you please start? Sure. Hi, and thanks, Julius, for having us today. We're very excited to be here. I am Suzanne Levy-Friedman. I'm a senior associate in the firm's FDA Medical Devices Practice Group based in Washington, D.C., and I help clients, large, small medical device companies of all types, all types of devices, get to the market in the U.S. safely and effectively, or rather showing FDA that they are adequately safe and effective. And as part of that strategy, we do a lot of claims reviews and helping clients figure out how to best market their products. And so pre and post market, that's a big part of what we do. And that's what I'm looking forward to talking about today. And Michael. Hi, everybody. Good evening. My name's Michael and I'm a counsel at Hogan Lovells based in Hamburg. And I specialize in commercial litigation. Uh, particularly in the life sciences sector, which means that I advise pharma companies and medical device companies in connection with uh, disputes that arise out of uh, contractual relationships, like, for example, non-performance of contracts or bad performance and termination of contracts. And I help clients to defend themselves against damages claims. And of course, I also bring such claims for our clients to civil courts in Germany. And what I also do is that I specialize in advertising litigation matters, which means that I analyze marketing materials and activities of competitors of our clients for non-compliance with German advertising law. And in, in case of non-compliance, I bring the respective claims for our clients to court. And of course, I also defend our clients in such cases in court proceedings. And yeah, these, these proceedings are mainly subject to injunction proceedings, which means that these are very fast proceedings where you have to be wide awake and up to date. And yeah, that's what I like. That's my daily business. And I'm kind of handling yeah, 30 to 50 cases like that a year, only in the life sciences sector. And that's what I mainly do. And so I think one of the things, Julius, that you'll see is that I'm much more on the regulatory side. And in the US, that's where a lot of this claims discussion happens, at least primarily. And, and so the interesting thing here is the interplay between Michael and I in terms of regulatory and litigation in the two jurisdictions. Yeah, I think we definitely have to cover the two kind of paths especially in the US, how kind of fines and all the threats that coming up for medical device companies and kind of the court side. But before we do that, can you give us a quick overview with maybe one or two examples in both of your jurisdictions around kind of the legal and regulatory activities for COVID-19 test kits and where manufacturers potentially went too far or got into the danger zone, let me put it into that word. 
Sure. Do you want to start, Michael, or do you want me to? Whatever you like. So please start. Okay. <laughs> sure. I'll keep it nice and brief. So yes, of course, as the pandemic started, COVID-19 was very scary and we had no way of making sure that we knew who had it and who didn't have it. So it was this huge rush, as everyone remembers. And my practice group, we were fielding, you know, tons and tons of questions and, and emergency use authorization applications. So FDA gained authority because of the declared public health emergency to review applications for test kits in a faster process, essentially, than would typically be required to get a medical device on the market with the caveat that because it was not a full comprehensive review, these authorizations, as they call them, last only until the end of the declared pandemic, at which point, if they want to stay on the market, they need to get the full authorization. And they also put in a policy to allow for certain types of test kits initially to be allowed without any authorization because of the dire need. And this is something that, again, would not typically be done if there wasn't a pandemic. So there were a lot of leniencies of sorts afforded to essentially allow for the fact that the risk benefit balance between you know, what was really needed and the benefits afforded to people had shifted because this was a pandemic and people were dying all, all, you know, all over the place. And so we really needed tests. And so it was reasonable to kind of shift that balance. And as the pandemic proceeded, the policies got a little bit stricter and a little bit more tailored because there was now some kits available and, and you know, people were starting to get things under control. And you know, the important thing to note is that there were leniencies afforded by FDA and by the government to allow for test kits, but that doesn't mean that any manufacturer can produce any you know, test that they want without any review and just put it on the market with a claim that is going to prevent you from getting COVID. You know, notwithstanding the fact that a diagnostic is not going to prevent you. Especially it's going to prevent to give you COVID. (laughs) And so, you know, what we saw a lot of is, you know, we saw manufacturers doing it the right way, trying to see, you know, where they did fit within one of the leniencies and where they didn't. And fortunately, most of our clients did not (laughs) get warning letters, but FDA issued upwards of 50 warning letters. And I think if you include other products marketed for COVID, it was upward of 120 in the first several months of the pandemic, basically citing manufacturers for invalid claims and saying you are putting things on the market that are not authorized, or you have an authorization in some cases, but you're claiming basically things that are completely unreasonable and have not been shown by your data. And so you have you know, they gave them a very limited time frame because of the nature of the pandemic and the reliance of people on these tests. To, to respond. Usually for a warning letter, you have 15 days, and for this, it was shorter. And the other thing to note is that the Federal Trade Commission, which is a totally separate agency, also got involved and in many cases issued the warning letters jointly with FDA. Quick question, but you needed, so all the products fell under the emergency authorization, right? But you needed a specific approval for each product you put on the market under the emergency authorization from the FDA, right? So certain types of test kits were awarded enforcement discretion, which means that if they met certain validation testing requirements that were set out in this umbrella guidance document from FDA, they could be distributed in the U.S. without FDA review and without an EUA. And that policy was motivated by the dire need for testing during the early months of the pandemic and FDA's assessment that these were antibody tests, so they were a fairly simple and well-known technology and that having limited claims would further lower the risk. So manufacturers couldn't claim their use for diagnosis as a sole method for diagnosis. 
Um, but over time, the agency became aware that a number of these tests were being marketed under this enforcement discretion policy and did not have adequate performance. So they were performing poorly, or at least not in accordance with the expectations FDA had set out. So it got severely curtailed based on FDA's realization that, first of all, the dire need at the beginning of the pandemic has largely been met. And second of all, that basically people were taking advantage of the leniency. And the other question, but maybe I have the wrong person here on the podcast for that, but what about liability, especially under the Emergency Authorization Act? So that is a, a very good question. It's not my area of expertise. We do have folks who specialize in it. There is what's called the PREP Act, which grants some liability protection, but I'm probably not the best person to speak about it. Okay. <laughs> and the other thing is, in, in the conversation before, you mentioned the questions around kind of imports of uh, products. And maybe you can uh, talk a bit sure. about the issues around that. Yeah. So when products are imported into the United States, there are officers at the border that are tasked with making sure that only things that are properly authorized or allowed in some way to be entered into the United States actually gain entry. And so a fair amount of what we did actually in the initial months of the pandemic was corresponding with our colleagues in the trade group and kind of helping clients who were international figure out what do we need to put in our customs documentation, you know, to certify and to actually show the people who are at the border that we actually do fall into, fall into these categories where maybe we don't actually need an EUA. Or if we do have an EUA, what do we need to put on our label to show that we have that EUA? Because typically you would include a 510k clearance number or a PMA approval number or a registration number, but all of those mainstream permanent requirements were either temporarily waived or kind of not focused on during the pandemic. And so we had to kind of adjust and, and, you know, more importantly, we had to keep readjusting as the policy shifted in some cases, for example, around respirators on a daily basis. Going to my jurisdiction, Michael, obviously with the court system and EMA, the whole thing is a little bit different over here. So if you can give a couple of examples on kind of defenses where you worked on for big manufacturers. I'm definitely not a, a regulatory expert and I cannot really talk about the, the regulation to, to put a medical device on the market. But what I can say is that putting a medical device on the market like testing kids for COVID-19 is rather easy in, in the EU and in Germany because the, the authorization process significantly differs from, from that to, to pharmaceuticals. So regarding medical devices, that's a mere certification process, which is done by notified bodies, which are kind of private organizations, which do the authorization at the end. And in, in this, in, in this procedure, you, as, as a medical device manufacturer, you only need to submit limited data. So, of course, for, for certain medical devices, you, only, you, you also have to submit clinical documentation, but it's not comparable to, to those of, of what, what you need for the authorization for, for pharmaceuticals. Or, and you cannot compare it to, to the requirements under, under U.S. law. So it's, it's rather easy to, to put a medical device on the market. But when you're on the market, then there are certain restrictions, especially by post by advertising law, which can lead to the fact that you kind of not really market the product in a, 
appropriate way. So to give an example, which kind of, yeah, is, is more like representative for, for the situation in Germany is when a company which actually specialized in in the diagnosis of rare diseases, they decided to, to put a, a self-sampling test kit on the market, on the German market. They had the they had uh, put on a, a test, a lab test, a PCR test for, for COVID-19, and they decided to, to sell self-sampling kits to laypersons, so to the public, so that everybody who wanted to do a COVID-19 test could do it. And they sold it via Amazon. So it was kind of, yeah, everybody found it and it was, like yeah it was in the public domain and and of course it, it was a kind of a great offer if, if you'd like to support the mass testing but what this company overlooked was that there's a certain provision under advertising law under german advertising law which prohibits the advertising of or any advertising of medical devices pharmaceuticals or every uh, other procedure that refers to the detection of certain diseases like COVID-19. And when you're aware that advertising under German law means that it is that it all also covers naming the product and its intended use, I think you it is pretty clear that they had a, a problem with, with their offer on Amazon or on, on and even in pharmacies and so on. And what this company also overlooked is that there's another provision in the medical device regulation which prohibits the dispensing of certain in vitro diagnostics to laypersons, which are meant for the detection of certain diseases like COVID-19. So basically, when you when you had a look look at the law and the provisions, this test kit, the self-sampling test kit, shouldn't be dispensed to laypersons and it shouldn't be advertised towards them. And what then happened was like the typical situation in, in Germany, a competitor sent them a warning letter and they requested to stop marketing the product and to advertise it. And that was the point when we came in and when we had a look at this case at the first time, we kind of yeah had a very bad feeling about it, but we managed to kind of delay the court proceedings. Of course, they immediately applied for a preliminary injunction with the regional court of Hamburg, which is kind of the court for advertising matters in, in the life sciences sector. And we managed to delay the proceedings and to make up some good argumentation to, as to why the, the dispensing of, of the self-sampling test, uh, test kit is, is permissible and as to why the, the, the advertising is as well. And ultimately, the court actually came to the conclusion that dispensing of the kit is okay. It's permissible under German law, but couldn't get really over the, the, the advertising prohibition. But we could convince the court that it doesn't really make sense that it should be allowed to dispense such a test kit to laypersons, but that you're not allowed to, to, to name the product and its intended use because that's factual prohibition. And that doesn't make sense. And so we could convince the court that it must be allowed to at least provide a product description of this test kit. So in the end, we had a very good result achieved for our client, but that's only one view you can have on this case because this company was not the only company who offered such test kits, but there were two or three other companies. And the the competitor who, who attacked our client, they they only attacked our client and not the other company. So the result was that our client could only provide the product description in, in, in their marketing materials and the other companies could come up with excessive marketing claims and, and kind of were free in the advertising. 
So that's the one thing. And you can even have, have a look at this case from a different angle, because in theory, there are public authorities in, in Germany which are competent to, to enforce violations of, of advertising law and medical device law. But that actually never happens. And, and this case was, was a good example for that because our client was, was in close touch with the competent authority when they put their, their test kit on the market and the, the, the authority didn't even notice that there might be a problem with the medical device regulation or, or even the advertising law. And we, we, had, a, we had a call with, with, the, with the authority and then we, we kind of developed together a, a argumentation as to why the, the dispensing must be allowed. But when we asked them why should the, the, the advertising be allowed as well, they couldn't give an answer. They couldn't give an answer, which meant that according to, to the authority, advertising should be prohibited, but they didn't intervene. They just didn't do anything. And regarding the other two or three companies, what we could take from, from the press coverage was that there were, were other authorities, because the, the, the authorities are organized on the, on the state level. They also intervened, but only with a view to the medical device regulation. And all of the, of the authorities came to the conclusion that it must be allowed to dispense these test kits. But none of the authorities even kind of thought about the advertising regulation. Just, it's, it's just not on their radar. And so <laughs> the, the result was still the same. All of the, of, all of the companies could still sell their products, but the other two or three companies could, could also advertise their test kits with yeah, more or less excessive claims. So I think that's kind of, that kind of reflects the, the, the situation in Germany pretty well, yeah. because what you should know when you, when you are a medical device company and, and want to put a new product on the market in Germany, you should definitely be aware of the advertising law, but you should also be aware that the that violations will not be enforced by authorities, but that will be the case for, for competitors. So violations of advertising law in Germany are definitely only, or well, in, in, in most cases, only be, be enforced by, by competitors. So the the, the, the whole competition situation, the market situation is dominated and it's, it's kind of depends on, on how the, the market players act and, and whether they decide to attack a certain claim or product or, or they do not. So in conclusion, the, in the US, primarily terms are through regulatory letters and threatening to find somebody. I mean, I think that's where the bulk of the focus is, at least before you get on the market. I mean, surely competitors do bring trade complaints and do notify authorities. And, and on occasion, you know, FTC with the Department of Justice does go to court sometimes. But from an FDA standpoint, it's really handled through kind of enforcement letters primarily and sometimes fines and import detentions. You know, court cases are possible, but rare for the most part. And I think, you know, interestingly, as Michael was pointing out, part of the benefit of that is that you tend to get a more level playing field because you have more of a uniform application in most cases, obviously not all the time, but in terms of, you know, X type of device is always meeting plus minus these five requirements or these seven requirements before they even get on the market because they need that in order to get the clearance. You know, and so competitors do bring claims because people sometimes after they get cleared, they start 
going broader and trying to, you know, claim that they do more than what FDA reviewed. But at, at least at the at the base stage for devices that do get clearance or approval, there's a little bit more uniformity, I think, in terms of what is kind of clearly allowed or not clearly allowed and in terms of what is actually publicly stated on that point by FDA itself. But you somewhat have a similar part with like the FDA as the gatekeeper and the FTC as the enforcer when products are on the market. So FDA and FTC can both enforce. FTC is not involved in the pre-market review of medical products. FTC mm. and FDA share jurisdiction over advertising of medical devices. And FTC primarily acts on medical devices that are marketed to consumers, right? It, its purview is a little bit different than FDA's. It's, it's focused more on false advertising, deceptive advertising. FDA obviously cares about that, but it's more a question of, are your claims properly substantiated by the data, which FTC also cares about. So there's definitely, there's a lot of overlap. They, the two agencies share jurisdiction and there is a memorandum of understanding. It's probably too detailed to go into <laughs> for this podcast, but you yeah. know, essentially FTC is more likely to work with DOJ to bring things to court on occasion. FDA tends to handle it more through its own processes. And coming back to Germany, obviously there is more to it. We have the good old CE mark, but on the other hand, the, the market itself regulates it or the competitors regulate themselves due injunctions more likely. Yeah, that's, that's absolutely correct. <laughs> <laughs> the market regulates itself. Yeah, that's, that's absolutely the case. And I think it kind of works pretty well particularly in the pharmaceutical area, of course, because there is this, the situation is kind of comparable to the US where, where you have, um, it is not that certain claims are approved by, by the B-Farm, which is the, the, the competent authority, but the supporting data, the clinical data is, is approved. And you have the, the SMPC, which is the pendant to the, to the IFU for, for medical devices. And every information which is included as in the SMPC is kind of, there's no way or, or basically no way that you can challenge it in, in civil court proceedings. So there's a, a certain certainty amongst pharmaceutical companies and everything that happens there is that they are discussing about excessive claims and, and whether certain clinical studies may support this, this one certain claim or not. But it's not like going to the substance like in, in the medical device market. In the medical device market, you have it's, it's just totally different because there's not this, this strict approval process. But on the other hand, also there, the, the market regulates itself, but in a different way because of, of course, the, the, the medical device manufacturers, at least to a certain extent, know about the, the regulations. And they normally they are good advice and, and they are advised not to attack claims of competitors um, with the with the with the argument that it's not sufficiently substantiated when when this could kind of fire back because they don't have the um, the, the sufficient sufficient data for their products as well. So the, the standards are lower because they are set lower at a lower level by the competitors by by the market players. So it kind of works. But we we regularly see cases where market players kind of try to to attack or, or they enter into dispute with, with the competitor because usually that happens when 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 new product is placed on the market i had for example in another case of last year when when a medical device manufacturer in, in the wound care business uh, put a new device on the market and of course they kind of 
market in a, in a more or less aggressive way and they used several comparative claims. They did a test with, with a competing product and, and they advertised the, these test results. And of course, their main competitor uh, wasn't so happy about that and, and, and he attacked this, these materials based on, on the fact that the test is not applied to, to, to actual to, to present scientific standards. But then what we then did was that we, we kind of, um, first of all, we, we of course rejected the claims and said, no, this test is, is valid and, and it's definitely okay and, 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 and is in, in compliance with, with scientific standards. And then we went through the marketing materials of, of the, the competitor one of them, one of it was was a brochure with a thousand of references and and studies and tests which with which the, the this company had conducted, and we we explained to 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 the competitor to this to this other medical device company that even though they have comprehensive data that this wouldn't stand up in court proceedings and and this that this even this more or less accurate uh, advertising wouldn't stand up in court proceedings and, and uh, are in, is in compliance with, with German advertising law. And so we then just filed a counterattack and, and the, the result was that both parties kind of allowed, mutually allowed themselves to, to, to use the old claims because they, they both realized that a dispute in this area just doesn't make sense and that, that data in the medical device industry yeah, practically never stands up with, with the high standards in, in, in German advertising law. So FDA in the United States is the gatekeeper in terms of the claims that can be made by medical device manufacturers. And the agency typically reviews those claims, or at least the overall subset of them, overall categories of claims that the manufacturer intends to make before they're allowed to be on the market in the first place. And so usually through the Federal Trade Commission in many cases, we'll bring a lawsuit, particularly where a manufacturer is egregious or repetitively violates the rules. But in most cases, this is handled before the market or after the company gets on the market at the first instance of a what FDA considers a violation. And so I think the courts are typically, although not always, less involved in sort of adjudicating these. And certainly they're less involved for the most part in determining what data is required to substantiate a particular claim because FDA is viewed as the public health watchdog and the science agency that can sort of best assess that. So I think that's the main difference compared to to Germany and the EU, I think, overall. Um, So it's more like comparable to, to the situation with pharmaceuticals in Germany, because there's the B-Farm, the, the competent authority who kind of reviews data and then approves the, the pharmaceutical. And so in, in the pharmaceutical industry, there's more certainty like in the US. And so there's, well, I wouldn't say that there's less litigation in this field, but there's certain that there's more certainty about the, the essentials, I think, but that's totally right. different in the in the medical device industry. Yeah, I think that makes sense, Michael. And I think, you know, like you just said, of course there is litigation, but where, where my practice group is involved is where the bulk of the work happens for the medical device industry before the market. And certainly if manufacturers are planning appropriately, they would want the claims and the data to match up appropriately from FDA's standpoint, because that's how they're going to get on the market. And that's how they're going to have more certainty moving forward. And then, you know, if there are competitor issues, those do sometimes go to litigation, but, you know, it it creates a more level playing field, I think, when a whole category of devices is all reviewed pre-market by the same regulator who expects the same general types of data for a particular type of device. Yeah, I totally agree with that. 
Yeah. I have one question and I feel like the whole play field changed a bit. Back in the days, you, the developers of pharmaceuticals or medical devices created pamphlets and brochures to hand to doctors and or lay out on huge events. Now, I think a lot of that shifted into social media, which is way harder to take care of and control. So is this something you see often? Yeah, definitely. I'm happy to start with that one. So we advise manufacturers all the time on social media. It's a big part of, of what I do and what my practice group does, because like you said, Julius, it is sort of like the new way to promote. And it's so easy, right? You just update your Facebook page or your LinkedIn page or your Twitter. I mean, it's kind of crazy to think that, you know, you have surgical devices that are being marketed on Twitter in, you know, whatever the limit is nowadays, 180 characters or something. And, and the big challenge, right, is that FDA has certain requirements and expectations that when you're promoting a product that is affecting clinical outcomes in some way, or potentially usually causing some level of risk to the person on which it's being used, that the safety information, or at least the critical safety information has to be included. So imagine you have 180 characters to state you know, the key benefits of your surgical robot, and you also have to state all of the key risks. And so this has created some problem for obvious reasons. And while FDA has been somewhat lenient, the grand scheme of things, basically they've said to manufacturers, look, you can create a direct hyperlink that will take you, take your user or your reader directly to a separate page with full safety information. But that's it. If there's no way for you to include at least the very minimal safety information and the full hyperlink directly to the full safety information in that Twitter page, then don't use Twitter. You know, it's just not the right platform for you. And when it comes to Facebook and LinkedIn, there's even less leniency because those don't have character limitations. And so they expect manufacturers to fully present a fair balance of risk and benefit and all the critical safety information. And of course, people don't always do that. And there is some judgment that we have to use as their lawyers to kind of tell them what are the rules and what's high risk and what's medium risk and what, you know, is probably not high risk as long as you can support it, you know, reasonably. For Germany, <laughs> I actually, I have, of course, we, we, we always, agree. we have already advised medical device companies and, and pharmaceutical companies on the advertising on, on social media, but actually this is very rare and i haven't seen any litigation in this field because i think it's just not i think it's it's quite different from the us because i know they use social media but it's it's still not the the main platform for the advertising they they kind of put the advertising on on their website and um, what we've seen in, in particular in the last year that they that they do webinars and and kind of upload videos and this stuff and i think that has definitely increased and and we also see litigation there because you have the the evidence online you can as a competitor check it and and analyze it and then attack it of course but this social media topic i think of, of course it is it is a topic in, in in germany but it is not it is not our daily work and i think that that it's not the still not the platform in in the healthcare sector to, to which is being used but on the other hand, now coming back, circling back to the COVID-19 testing kits, and they're getting more available for kind of the end user and brackets. Maybe we are going to see more like paid influencers coming forward, showcasing the use of the testing kits on Instagram Reels or whatever platform they're using. Yeah, that's so, all. 
that will be interesting to see. Particularly, you will have to ask the question who to sue in that case, the, the influencer wow. or the company behind it, because you can't really connect the influencer to, to the company. But of course, there will definitely arise interesting questions yeah. out of this. So FDA and FTC have actually already become much more active in monitoring social media influencers. And the best known example with FDA is probably with Kim Kardashian. She was paid to promote on behalf of Duchesne, which makes a morning sickness medication. And because she's so popular among consumers, she got over 400,000 likes on an Instagram post that featured essentially just a selfie of herself holding the pill bottle that said the name of the drug and discussing in the comments how great this drug was and how much it helped her during her difficult pregnancy. But FDA issued a warning letter to the drug manufacturer indicating that this post was misleading because it didn't discuss any of the risks associated with the drug and it overstated who was eligible to take it. So there are certain populations in the manufacturer's labeling that can't take this drug. And she didn't mention that at all in her post. So even though the warning letter wasn't addressed directly to Ms. Kardashian, it did require, interestingly enough, that the manufacturer take action to correct the impression she made. And that meant correcting it through the same medium to ensure that the right audience was reached. So this was kind of a big deal because it was sort of FDA saying, we do actively monitor these websites and we are actually going to impose requirements on how you use these websites and these social media platforms that might kind of be different than what you are familiar with in our traditional enforcement actions. And the other thing that was interesting is that FDA disclosed sort of to our discussion earlier that it both identified this post on its own through its own kind of policing of networks, but also through its bad ad reporting program, which means that a competitor or some outside entity actually flagged it and submitted a complaint to FDA to notify the agency that they thought it was a misleading post. And in the last week, I've seen two what they call the non-public versions of the enforcement letters. One was an untitled letter and one was what we call an it has come to our attention letter. And it's basically where FDA issues a letter to a manufacturer that starts with, dear so-and-so, it has come to our attention that you are making X, Y, or Z claims. And the main places that they cited for those claims were Instagram and the company website. So <laughs> they're, they're basically showing manufacturers, like, don't think that we're not looking here anymore because we are. I've seen a post on LinkedIn from an executive member of a board promoting, like, we are working on an antigen test right now. We are in, like, the final studies um, coming to you in, like, a couple of weeks. And it's super comfy to use, which is, like, a really <laughs> interesting claim. Yeah, because... Everyone is complaining about all the way up the nose getting, and it's very getting all through the nose. But this is really kind of a sales. Tool. You can actually buy that stuff because it's super comfy. It's not as painful to use as the other ones. It actually <laughs> sounds to me like he got advice or she, I don't know, from it's a, a lawyer because it's because well, because lawyer. comfy is not an effectiveness claim. And so, you know, sure, it better be true, but it's a lot easier to say that in the US at least and get away with it. As opposed mm. to saying it's more accurate. It was in German, so I translated, okay. but it comfy, it was like, but I felt like, okay, uh, I think this is the direction we go to promote <laughs> it to the public. It's not as painful. It is just easy to use mm -hmm. and fast. And, but. And I think when, when, when this product will definitely or will, will finally be in the market and there will be competitors, then this claim will definitely challenged and and i could really imagine that because in germany it's very strict and you you kind of you don't need an efficacy claim but but kind of every claim needs to be supported and you, you right. should kind of do a head-to-head -head clinical study with, with for two comfortable tests and yeah yeah <laughs> i could imagine we, that we have that definitely we have that uh, require those, those, those studies yeah 
I mean, we, yeah, FDA requires head-to-head studies for comparative claims, but I feel like more comfortable would be sort of on the lower risk spectrum because they just have so much more to go after. That's a lot more misleading and, and kind of dangerous. But on the other hand, or more like taking a look into the glass bowl, from my imagination uh, is that at some point we are going to go into a pharmacy or a drugstore or CVS, what you guys have, Walgreens, whatever, and have like pregnancy tests, glucose tests, and COVID-19 antigen or like whatever mm-hmm. other testing kit available. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, that's the sure. goal, right? The FDA is trying to make that possible. My group was involved in helping to get authorization, emergency authorization. So for the first at-home COVID test, but it required a prescription. So it wasn't like you could just walk up to the drugstore and, and buy it. But I think we're definitely moving in that direction. And I think, you know, hopefully we will because we need it. But at the same time, you need to make sure that you have a watchdog or a kind of independent agency that can make sure that whatever's in that drugstore is is validated. I actually read in the newspaper this morning that the first store which will offer a self-test for consumers will be a discounter, Aldi. And on Tuesday, this will be next Monday, and on Tuesday, Lidl, the other big discounter in Germany, mm. will follow. So wow. it's not that, that they will be only available in pharmacies, but also in, in kind of discounters. Hmm. That's interesting. We have Aldi here. Maybe I should go visit. <laughs> <laughs> They're not. I'm pretty sure that <laughs> you guys are not there yet. <laughs> but all this consideration and things, I think, are really helpful for our clients and definitely facts to think about before coming to the market. When Michael and I were talking before this, you know, what we sort of came to as a sort of takeaway is that you know, there, there are obviously some overlapping principles here, right? Like you need to have substantiating data. You can't just say things that aren't supported by scientific data. But the way in which that's implemented, pre-market, post-market, by competitors, by the regulator, is, is rather different in the two jurisdictions. And we find, at least I find in my practice, that a lot of clients who don't plan early kind of get surprised when they launch in one country and then they want to just launch in another one pretty quickly because the rules are different and you have to be prepared for the fact that, for example, if you launch in the EU, you can cite a lot of clinical literature that isn't with your specific product. And then the US, that's usually not allowed. You need to have clinical data on your product if FDA wants you to have clinical data. So, you know, little differences like that, that can actually lead to a huge time commitment. And if you can think about them ahead of time, it's better. Yeah, but I think this also kind of best advantages because when you develop a product and, and you, of course, you need to make money with it as soon as possible. So you can, of course, as a medical device company, plan on just launching it in the EU and kind of mm-hmm. make money very early with only little data and this very fast certification process. And then you can make money and um, collect the, the, the required data for, for the approval in the US and then launch uh, subsequently in the US. Yeah, so, and we've definitely seen clients do that. That's definitely yeah. a fair point. So question, did we miss anything? (laughs) I think that was a really fruitful um, conversation, but is there anything else? Um, You are the pros here, so I need to ask that question. (laughs) (laughs) I think it was a good discussion. I don't know, Michael, do you think we missed anything? No, I don't think so. That's it for today. If you have further questions for Michael, and or Suzanne. I'm linking their bios in the description below. 
Um, if you don't want to miss any new episode and you haven't subscribed yet, hit the subscribe button. We have a lot of listeners, but not as many subscribers as I was hoping up to this point. We are going to hear each other in about two weeks. Thank you for tuning in. And we're looking forward to have you back when we're talking The Cure.